Today on episode number 497 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Personalized Learning Pedagogies with Paul Galbelli and Favronia Christodolidi. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Paul Galbali is an applied psychologist and psychotherapist based in London, Essex in the United Kingdom. Paul currently works for the University of East London in the School of Psychology as a senior lecturer, where he teaches and delivers clinical training on several undergraduate and postgraduate counseling and psychology courses. With over a decade of clinical experience, he's provided therapy to families, couples, and individuals while working in an array of high-profile agencies, including the NHS, Relate Limited, the Family Justice System, Essex County Council, and Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Paul specializes in family systems, intimate relationships, divorce, separation, and the psychosocial relationships between people. He is a fellow of the Higher Education Academy and a research active academic whose work has been published in international peer-reviewed academic journals and books. Outside of work, Paul is a keen cook who is tremendously fond of Italian food and wine. He tries his best to practice yoga three times a week, plays bass guitar, and is the proud owner of two rescue pug dogs who enjoy eating anything he drops whilst cooking. Paul has also recently become a new dad to a gorgeous baby girl called Bohemia Wild and is trying to get some sleep when he can. Also joining me on today's episode is Dr. Favronia Christodolindi, a.k.a. Fenia. She is a London-based BACP-accredited psychotherapist with over 20 years of experience in supporting clients at different settings, including student and staff counseling, occupational health counseling, working in charities, and in private practice. She's also a senior lecturer in counseling and psychotherapy at the University of East London, a qualitative researcher, a clinical supervisor and consultant for therapists, educators, leaders, and mobile professionals across different sectors. Fenia is an equality, diversity, and inclusion facilitator, deeply committed to supporting teams toward equitable relationships and inclusive workplaces. She's a fellow of the Higher Education Academy, and she is actively involved in the decolonization movement within higher education. She's a public speaker and provides talks and workshops on a variety of topics that draw from her expertise, such as the pedagogy of vulnerability, cross-cultural therapy, existentialism, interracial relationships, and parenting children of dual heritage. 
Fenia is multilingual and has traveled extensively whilst having researched cross-cultural communication throughout her career, something that enables her to bring her knowledge and experience in supporting multicultural and multilingual individuals, teams, and workplaces. Fenia is an advocate of honoring diverse voices within institutions such as universities, hence adopting a personalized learning approach when teaching and supervising students at different levels. Paul and Fenia, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Lovely to be here. I was so glad to be introduced to you and instantly captivated by your research. And before I start asking you all sorts of questions, Fenia, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you work and, and where you where you do your, I should say, your life's work and, and a little bit about your context. Yes. So I'm based just outside London in terms of where I live. And both Paul and I are working at the University of East London teaching on the BSc Counselling, which is a, a three-year program that leads to a professional qualification where students graduate with a practitioner degree to go out basically and uh, practice as counsellors. Besides that, I also run a private practice as a psychotherapist, but I've been in this institution for the last 10 years teaching at UEL. So I've been there during the period where we're trying to shape and form the course and its philosophy and its practices. And then Paul joined and we've done much more work on this together, which I really enjoy working with Paul. So should I say a bit about the course? Oh, yes. But before you do, I'm yeah. curious for either one of you who would care to answer this, what do most people who aren't in your profession misunderstand or, or get wrong about therapy or teaching people to be therapists, whichever, whichever way you'd like to go with that? Yes, so I think the biggest misconception is that someone who is training to be a therapist or is a therapist always wants to be doing therapy. So people will talk to you on the tube and expect you to sort of, you know, be a, it's a bit like asking a, a plumber to have a look at your pipes when every time they come around for dinner. <laughs> so it is, a, it is a thing that people think you're doing it all the time or you're analysing them. Mm. You're sitting there analysing what they're saying and, and often that can be, you know, uh, when I'm not at work, I love to just kind of not be doing that. And the other thing is also that we've got our lives together. The, the, especially the students often think we live kind of perfect lives. I think we talk about it a bit in our paper, but this idea that we're kind of the complete article and we're as, uh, as flawed as anyone else and we have our anxieties and all our all the stuff that comes with being a person. So sometimes there's a, which is a big expectation of, of therapists. We're expected to sort of know what we're doing all the time. Um, and, and often we, we don't. <laughs> so it's, uh... Yes, that's so true. I feel like on a broader level, I know that I can have misconceptions, just like it always seems like other people have it together or, or know things. Other people got the instruction book that somehow I missed in life or things like that. So true. I think mine's still in the post. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit about your context and some of the misconceptions that people will have. So, Fenia, tell us about this program that the two of you worked on and, and how it came about and, and what how it works. Yes, so we are based in East London, in the borough of Newham, in Stratford, uh, for those who know the London geography, uh, which is very much a hub of multiculturalism in the sense that, yeah, the, the community is very diverse in terms of uh, racial representation, religion. As an example, just opposite our campus, we have a girls' Muslim school, 
Uh, on the other road of our university, we have a Hindu temple. Further down the line, we have a mosque. So a lot of the students we have are of diverse ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds. And also because it's an undergraduate course, we have diversity in terms of age. Like, for example, we may have an 18-year-old who just finished school and feels very inexperienced about life, coming to study something very responsible. But we may have also students who are uh, in a career change. They may be in the 40s, 50s, 60s even, who decide to change. Uh, and so in the classroom, we have yeah this diverse um, setting, which is such a contrast to the courses I've taught previously outside of London, which are predominantly white, predominantly female students, usually middle-aged <laughs> women. So that's such a contrast, as I was saying, which also posed the question about how do we meet the needs, the learning needs of such a diverse group. That's how Paul and I started discussing, okay, so we have a curriculum, but is that something that is actually compatible? And is it something responsive to this diverse cohort of students we have? Also to say something else that is distinct about this program. I mean, in the UK, uh, counseling and psychotherapy are not yet a regulated profession. Like in the US, for example, although we work towards that in the next three years or so. So this course is the only undergraduate course in London amongst about 10 or 12 in the whole country at undergraduate level that have obtained the BACP accreditation, which is the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy. So that gave us certain standards that we need to work towards. Uh, and we were very aware that we want to meet these standards, but we don't want this to be stifling, if you like. Sometimes, you know, with rules and regulations, sometimes they cannot be designed in a way that they consider to be culturally sensitive. So that was also something that we give a lot of emphasis on, how we can hold to the on to the standards, but make them inclusive and responsive to the STEAM needs of the students. What a whole series of tensions and aspirations that I imagine have been both challenging and it sounds like filled you with hope for what's possible too. Talk about the role specifically that that personalized learning plays. And I'll 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 tell you up front that personalized learning is one of those words, the phrases that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So how does your idea of personalized learning play a role in the way you've structured things? Uh, okay, so I would say if it was to, I wouldn't talk about definition necessarily, but let's assume that what we mean, let's take this working definition that we want to be teaching in a way where everybody can make the most of that experience. Mm. Everybody can flourish. Everybody can engage with the learning in ways that are stimulating, empowering, and facilitated in a way that actually they are there to succeed. Mm. So one of the things, one of the principles that come to that is that we communicate the message to the students. We are with you. We are on your side. We want you to succeed. We want to also provide you something that is not designed in a way that it's inadvertently may set you up to fail. So an example would be, let's say, neurodiversity. You know, are we teaching in ways that can engage the uh, student who has some learning differences? Or is our curriculum very focused on Western ideas, for example? Is our curriculum delivered in a way 
where the student who may have, I don't know, some mobility issues may find it difficult to sit still in a classroom. That's just some everyday examples. So these are the questions we've been having with real case studies, if you like, that we had to face on our program and we had to come up with a solution, something that would make it exciting and engaging for the students. Mm. And how about the role that the student experience and the ways in which academic support comes in and academic progression? Paul, do you want to share a bit about that? Yeah, thank you. So we have standard academic support within the universities of things like academic advising, where students are given a a member of staff that guides them in, in different places. And we have various support services. But on the course, we thought we build real relationships with the students. They get to know us and we get to know them. We Because we watch them counselling, so often they'll tell us quite intimate things in their lives. Because when we do counselling training, we don't ask them to do role play. We, we call it real play, where mm-hmm. they bring real issues. And so we get to know stuff about them. I mean, I'm a um, um, my area of expertise is relationships so I'm always interested in people's relationships and whether they're romantic or family relationships or other ones so we get that idea of actually we get to know the students and the students become incredibly um, and also because it's a counselling course you get strange dynamics between the staff and students you get lots of counselling terms that things like transferences and all these sorts of things happen so we represent people to our students so sometimes that's good sometimes that's bad but we work through these things with students so there's a real and as Fenya said we we go alongside the students we want them to succeed and we but we also want there to we want to contain them because counseling training is quite exposing and often people who come on the training have come because something's happened to them so for example students come on because they've they've been bereaved or they've when they was a child they didn't have a counselor to help them through something so often they're coming with quite challenging experiences that they're trying to to work out and and sometimes them things can as you probably know yourself enough they can trip you up these things you they suddenly get activated previous losses and previous um, insecurities so one of the things we really do on there is we we get to know them and, and they get to know us I think that's a big difference between a lot of courses we're not and some of the students in their in their data collection talked about they know things about us um, they share in our lives and that can feel a bit exposing as a as a as an academic but actually I love that part of the teaching because you you interact as real people and and you model dealing with difficult emotions dealing with difficult situations so we often do that with our students so the support is often very personalized very intimate and but also comes with boundaries it's it's where we wouldn't give them their phone numbers to ring us up on a Saturday so there's we have to a bit like with client work we have to kind of hold the line between being a, I suppose a professional friend, but also being a, a an educator, and we mark their work. We, 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 you know, we have to we we evaluate them as well. So we have to straddle that. So it can be tricky, but it's it's lovely to when them relationships. And often our students, I get students contact me years after they've left, just to tell me how they're getting on, and they want to let us know they're doing something or something that we done on the course really makes it. They finally got it. <laughs> you know, something we said five years ago. They said, oh, you know, that makes sense now. Once they get into practice and things like that. So, yeah, we kind of take an approach where we really give ourselves to the students and, and let them give themselves to us, if that makes sense. Yes, you you use the word boundaries. And I'd love to hear a bit more about the ways either of you navigate these boundaries. Do you share them with students in any sort of written form, such as the syllabus, or do you verbalize them? Or how, how do you think through and then articulate and 
as I know a bit about boundaries, set them and then also keep them going, keep keep them at the top of the community's mind. Yeah, I mean, I can offer examples. I think the way the way I do it is to be offering personal examples of either how I've experienced certain phenomena we are teaching them about. Like, for example, when we teach about, I don't know, diversity or intersectionality or difference, I may bring my experience of being an immigrant, you know, the fact that I'm a foreigner living in the UK, the fact that I have an accent and uh, people may question where I'm from or they may make assumptions about no drawing from my appearance, like for example, I have dark features. Sometimes people think I'm a Latina or that I am Muslim, but actually I'm from a Greek Orthodox country, you know, nothing to do with the assumption. So yeah, I may bring examples like that for my personal life, the things that I embody and how this have played out in my work with clients and how I've handled it. Or it may be an example of some ethical dilemmas or the boundaries coming up in the therapeutic relationship. And again, how I have handled it. Like a recent example was saying that, you know, I went to a restaurant with my husband and the waiter happened to be my client, how that affected then the dynamics between us, how we spoke about it. So the fact that I'm not just bringing case studies from a book, but I'm actually talking about my own examples, that makes it very relatable. And then there may be things like bringing humor into it, trying to have difficult conversations sometimes by making them lighter to begin with or having a bit of self-sarcasm or something around this to break the ice. Uh, Like I might say, oh, what happens? What if you fall in love with your client? Or what if your client comes on your door and, you know, stops you or whatever? So we make it real by bringing my own examples. And I think that's what the students then relate to. And they don't see us as this, you know, all-knowing person where everything is sorted and, and I have all the answers. It's more about learning to think rather than having always the solution. So I, I give them that process of my dilemmas and that makes it tangible for them. I know that a big part of not just the course, but the the program is something called the use of self as the main tool. Would you talk a bit about the use of self? Yeah, I could start with that. And and maybe, Fane, you could add, if if I miss anything. So use of self, it comes from a kind of therapeutic, because again, we find our therapy, all the people who teach on the course are therapists. So we do have that kind of practical experience where we can as Fenya said, we offer case studies and various other things. And we've also done quite a lot of work on ourselves. Part of training is to go into therapy and things. So we we kind of know a lot about ourselves. We've, we've gone up, you know, we've done quite an investigation into ourselves. And in therapy, the use of self is really important. The idea that you work with your client, you you collaborate. Um, and we you try to kind of transpose that into our teaching. Because often we'll have students say things like, I need to do a perfect session. I need to say the right thing. It doesn't exist. We And we, as Senya said, we'll, we'll kind of highlight our mistakes. Some of the best therapies I've done is when I've made a mistake and got something more and, and repaired a rupture. And so we say that we're people. We The idea of social relationships being in flux and when you're working with clients or you're learning, if you don't make mistakes in the therapy room in training, you're you're never going to learn anything. So it's this idea that there's a sense of vulnerability and, and reflection on what happens. So this idea that the self is sort of fallible, and it's always developing. I mean, we we call our 
sort of therapist tra- therapist in training and, and Fen and I are still therapists in training we don't know everything you know when you for example some of the, the greats like people like Patrick Casement and people they write books in their later years and they still write you know I'm finally getting the ideas behind this they've got this sort of humility around them where I'm just about understanding what I'm doing now and they've been doing this for hundreds of years and and it's that idea that as Fenya said we don't have all the answers but we we use ourselves as people we are the tool of the therapy of the learning and and by doing that the closer we get to each other the more we understand each other you know I think the further you are from your experience the more confusing it can be or the less understanding you get when you have a conversation with a partner and sometimes you just misfire because you're so far away from where you're trying to talk to each other that you sort of it gets further and further away and by the end of it you're you're in different places and it's like that so we we really invite people to use themselves and when they feel especially when they feel things you know if you're in a room so for example I'll sometimes feel sleepy when I'm watching student sessions and I know that means someone's not saying something I know that 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 feeling isn't me being tired that's me feeling that something's not being said by these training therapists something's being missed and there's a, a dynamic we need to think about and we'll highlight that and I know that because I feel it so it's often them sort of, I suppose, hunches or felt sense or all different things like that. So it's really, it feels a bit mystical, but it's kind of, you know, like that feeling when you're in love and you just know. Mm. <laughs> it's a lot of that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. I think another important aspect, especially for students who make a career change, is to bring out the strengths that they have developed from a previous career to the current one. And make that use of self there. What I mean is, I can think of students we had where one was a fireman, the other one was a police woman, another one was a performer, another one was a teacher. And, you know, so what were the qualities that they have developed in this previous career that can be useful now? So that would be their use of self. For example, you know, the fireman is very stoic and used to be in a crisis where, you know, life is under threat and they've managed to cope. So how could they use that part of themselves in this new professional identity? I think this is a very good example where students then feel empowered and they don't feel that they have to throw away the previous life because they decided to do a course, you know, at age 40. uh, And that is the lost years. They actually can make these connections and that gives them a sense of purpose and a continuity. Oh, yes. I'm hearing a sense of asset-based pedagogy there that... that all of our prior life experience, context, cultures were able to use them as gifts in this yeah. new in this new way that I suspect is for so many of them feels very new. And you probably give yeah. them such a sense of hope when you share though and help them connect with that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the ways in which you invite students to provide you with feedback using virtual tools. Yes. I mean the university has some an avenue where there is a questionnaire that is sent to them, the students in a specific uh, time during the academic term. So, for example, now we are, I think, week eight during the term, and next week they're going to send out this questionnaire where they give them specific questions around the content of the course, the delivery, the the support they get about assessment, how they find the tutors, the facilitators. So that is a standardized method that the university um, is using to to do that. But I, I also find that in terms of student engagement with that, it does help if we 
encourage them to give that feedback in the class as well. And perhaps because we want it to be obviously anonymous or do not, you know, how would the students say the things that they're uncomfortable with if it's a live discussion? But again, for example, we can tell the students to log on a platform in the class and do that so that they can share without exposing their name, the feedback they have. That is in terms of the virtual. I don't know if, Paul, you have any other uh, Um. idea. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Tanya. I suppose one of the things we, we came across was that therapy is kind of old-fashioned in some sense, that before the pandemic, it was all done in person, and there was this huge thing about being in the room with people. And I'll be honest, I prefer working with people in the room. I do. I've got a lot more used to the online world. But we had to adapt quick. We had to really update our practices. And the pandemic mean meant we didn't shut the course down. We We worked through and but we put things online we held therapy sessions online and we've kind of used a lot of that since so we still do a lot of learning online so we encourage so i think what it does encourage it encourages discussions after classes so we put things we use microsoft teams so it's quite a nice platform because you can have a meeting then you can put information in and then you can have a discussion you can and i I mean i love sharing papers with students i love to share actual academic sources because i think sometimes students are a bit especially our students they're quite frightened of academic work i'm 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 from a gypsy background so a lot of people from my background didn't finish school so i really get that you know i'm the first person in my family to go to university etc etc so a lot, lot of our students have a similar experience and so i really love being able to give them academic articles or blogs that link to articles or newspaper articles after classes and I always set them reading as well so and I kind of chase them up online to say look read this it's really interesting and come to the come to the classroom and ask me about the paper critique the paper tell me the paper was rubbish and it really encourages that sense of of learning between sessions and coming prepared with questions to really I kind of start that critical thinking to say, what did you think of the paper? What about the author? Did you check them out to see where their position was on this? You know, were they, did they have a sort of stake in this paper? And I think what it does is I love that sort of interface between online learning and learning in person, because what you do is you kind of start the learning and then they come in and then they go home and do something or you give them a video to watch or say, why don't you watch this film? Because this is something we looked at today. And then they come back and it kind of allows a learning almost like by osmosis in the week and and they have little discussion groups sometimes as well so you'll see discussions where someone says oh, i loved that article and i really i was thinking about this and this part maybe really cross because i didn't like the way that was that that case they used or whatever like this so it's i think it is enabled us to create a 24-hour learning that people can access as for, also on their own time because often getting to university is hard for students. They've got busy lives, so it allows them to... And some people are night birds. They kind of go up at three in the morning, they want to read something. So it allows that sort of, again, that personalised learning where it's not it's not strictly between two to four or, or it's, it's very adaptable. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I'd love to hear you share a bit about what you've heard from the students about the course. Yeah, I actually have some verbatim feedback that I have recorded here on my notebook, which I can read to you out. So here's one student said, it's easy to be silent or hide behind dry theory, but the risks you took and the tentative self-disclosures made the topic feel much more tangible. Uh, So that was from one uh, of the students we, uh, we, we had in this focus group. Another 
uh, comment was, I love your teaching. It is congruent, brave, and allowed, safe, uh, inviting environment for me to explore what I consider really uncomfortable questions. Um, mm. So I think that shows a bit these, you know, as I was saying, breaking the ice and allowing this vulnerable aspect to come into the conversations that then the students felt that it was okay to do as well rather than have the more, as I say, dry theory discussion, the intellectualizing of a topic and not making it relatable to real world problems. Yes. I, boy, those are such powerful words. I, I picture those, if not literally framed, then framed in your mind treasures that you can carry with you to really reinforce the courage that you're showing. I How wonderful to hear the word brave and safe in the same, I believe it was the same sentence, but if not the same mm-hmm. sentence, the same sentiment. I we There's some debate, not debate is perhaps too yeah. strong a word, but the idea of safe spaces really resonates with me, but so does the idea of brave spaces. So that you got both brave and safe in the same, I mean, that's really beautiful that you could achieve that. That's That's really beautiful. Wanting to stretch people, but also wanting them to be able to be fully present and mm. in all of the fullness of who they are i mean i would also say uh so i didn't know if i wanted to say that this also linked to the brave and safe to the idea of the university being an environment where we can cultivate attitudes for social justice i think that's very hot now in the world i mean in academia but in the world as well that sometimes by Focusing only on the safe, it means that we don't challenge the practices that are not right, like racism or ableism or things like that. So I think this is something that our students have also said, that they they do want to be part of this movement of disrupting inequalities and injustices, but they don't know how. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't know if you would agree, Paul, that when we were in this focus group that we talk about in the paper, they did feel that we could create these anchors, if you like, where they can hold on and dare say things that are difficult. I don't know how you would describe it, Paul. Yeah, um, de- definitely. We we encourage students to to explore and also explore their their darker thoughts. You know, people often, mm. especially in 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 learning spaces, don't don't want to talk about the things that they find difficult, or the biases they hold, and and that perpetuates biases because they may become unconscious and they become manifest in other places. So we we often get people to talk about the things they find fearful or the people they find difficult to be with or the experiences they find difficult to hold. One of the things I say to students all the time, this course will make you uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, we're not doing our job. You know, we want people to feel discomfort, but in a way that they can, I suppose, interrogate that discomfort and think, what is it about this situation or this critique that makes me feel discomfort? And I suppose it's that that relationship between safe and brave spaces. I think spaces are only safe when you feel they're safe and they can change. A space isn't always safe. It is safe as long as it's made to be safe, whereas a brave space becomes a space where you can make a space safe by talking about things. And and one of the, the joys we have with students, especially in the, the group we had and what they said is learning from other people, hearing a perspective different to your own, which they may never have heard before, and, and having a, a person in front of them to share an experience that feels very different to their own, but they can then connect to pieces of it or they can empathise with bits of it or they can it helps them understand their self better. So it's always this kind of, um, I suppose, learning and and being open to, we, we do something called personal development groups. And we often talk in there about the things that if you're having a response to something, 
what is it about that person or that discussion that's making you feel that? Because we often sometimes think about, I just feel offended or angry or whatever about something. But often it's about wondering, why is that activating me? Why does that make me have such an impulsive reaction to this? And if we can do that, and once you start doing it, it really makes life a bit easier because you kind of do it in all sorts of places. And you think, actually, why do I, why does this thing really affect me? So we do, we kind of encourage that with students and they often, they love that once they've learned to do that because they take it to their relationships, they take it to their friendships, they take it to their work and it helps them understand and actually they share it with others as well. You know, if they've got children, they model it with their children. You know, we've had stories from students saying, I've done this thing that we learned about with the children, we've done this and they come back and they're excited that they've they've sort of seen it in action, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, this is the time in the show in which we each get to give our recommendations, and I have two. As you were speaking and talking about London, I started thinking fondly on my trips there, although I've not traveled there in more than two decades. And so for anyone who were to go to London for the first time and perhaps travel on the tube, I when I can vividly remember traveling and missing my stop and thinking, well, I'm on the circle line, so I'll just wait until it circles back around. <laughs> the circle line is, in fact, not a circle. It's it's a line. So I just, that's my tip. My recommendation one is don't expect that circle line to actually be a circle. It is not. Uh, my second recommendation is a television show. There is a TV service called Apple TV Plus, which side note, you could subscribe to even for just one month in order to get all the goodness of their shows. And it is a television show about a grieving therapy therapist. And the grieving therapist, it's, it's actually a comedy. The, com- the show is called Shrinking. And it stars Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford. Jason, they run a practice together, a, a psychotherapy practice together. And the character that Jason Siegel plays just decides that he's actually going to start breaking some of the rules that therapists are supposed to follow. And rather than sort of more guiding them and asking questions, he's just going to tell them exactly what he thinks. He ignores his training. He ignores his sense of ethics and all sorts of hilarity and... And uh, really fun, funny, believe it or not, funny things happen. And I know that, Paul, you were mentioning early in our conversation that people will expect you to always want to be a therapist. And just like somebody who's an attorney doesn't want to always watch shows about legal situations and people may not want to watch a show about therapy. But I have my friends who are therapists have watched Shrinking and say it passes the test for general society, but also people who are therapists. My sample size of like three people uh, also found it quite amusing and not one of those triggering things in terms of watching a show about your profession. Of course, it's not meant to be uh, realistic, but it is certainly relatable to some many of the challenging things that we can experience in our lives. So those are my two recommendations. And Paul, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Yeah, thank you. I had two as well. So one was a bit more serious and then one was a bit more recreational. So the serious one was I went to a talk. There's a thing called the Skeptic Society where they have talks in pubs and people come in and tell you about their books or their different speakers. And, and this guy, Keith Khan harris came in. And he's wrote a book called The Babel Message, A Love Letter to Language. And I love language and how it you know, situates people. And basically, he discovered that when he opened, a, I don't know if you have these in America, but a Kinder Egg, they're little um, sweets, like little eggs with a toy in. And there's a toy in the in there and there's a little message. And it tells you, to, you know, if you've got small kids, don't eat the toy. 
um, because they can choke. And he discovered that the message, when it's, it's translated in loads of languages on this little sheet, that actually the translation is different in every language. And so he done a whole book on how language isn't universal and things get translated differently. And he translated the Kinder Egg message into over 200 languages, including Zulu, Klingon, Cornish, Elvish, and got experts to comment on what they actually meant. And it's quite a funny book, but it's also really serious. He talks about the complexities of language, but it is funny that he, and he gets every year sent a big box of Kinder Eggs by Kinder, and he's got hundreds of these things. <laughs> so, and it's a brilliant book because it, it really, the way it started I think it's brilliant just from this little egg and he wrote a whole kind of book about what you know his adventure and he still gets people sending obscure languages that they know to him and he's always on the lookout for more so if you're an obscure language speaker get in touch with him because he's he's always looking out oh apologies my dog oh you're allowed <laughs> to have dogs <laughs> the do- does the dog have anything that they would like to share on teaching and he's higher ed looking for kinder eggs somewhere i know i was he just really wanted to talk about um, this boy this is great because some holidays are coming up for for some of us and the i mean this looks like a wonderful gift for people who enjoy language you're giving it I'm is, gonna, i have it to is. multitask now and go on my computer and start adding it to our gift list it's, for ideas. it's a really good book and it is good fun and if you get a kinder egg, you'll never look at it the same. So you wonder, what does it say in Romanian or, you know, something like this. So yeah. Um, my second recommendation is I bought, the best thing I've ever bought was a pizza oven, a mobile pizza oven. And mm. you can take it camping and it's by a company called Uni and someone recommended it to me and I can't stop making pizzas. I love it. And it's become my thing. So when people come round, I set this thing up and stick wood in the back of it and I feel like a proper... Um, pizza chef you know and it's it's become an obsession of mine so I would recommend if you're into pizza get this thing because you can take it anywhere with you as well so it's a and I've, I've yeah I'm cracking up because I know that brand name I listen to a lot of tech podcasts and so it's a yeah. sponsor that company is a sponsor for many by the way not a sponsor for teaching in higher ed so Paul's <laughs> Paul's recommendation is from his heart <laughs> and his stomach entirely but but uh, I didn't realize it was portable or that they made portable ones always yeah, when they talk yeah. about it I pictured so, you'd have to have it you know installed some huge thing in your backyard or something no I mean but. you can you can put wood in the back of it so you don't even need a gas supply or anything so it's and I just I got it as a bit of a sort of experiment and i i love it now and it's my favorite i've never been into but i've never got barbecues working but pizza ovens i've mastered so I'm, oh my gosh um, it's camping my, so you don't think of pizza, pizza while you're camping but it sounds amazing <laughs> <laughs> you're almost making me want to go camping almost, <laughs> almost <yeah. laughs> all yeah. right fenia what would you like to recommend today yeah, I have two recommendation to, uh, recommendations too. One is a, a non-profit organization which is actually based in Whitechapel, not far from our university in East London, called uh, the Service Society UK Associations. Association. So if you want to look it up, it's service-society.org.uk. So this is a community project where all the activities are run by volunteers and they we offer relaxation groups, groups for the study of the self, self-awareness groups, meditation, dance and movement therapy. It's something that is done, as the title says, you know, service society is free of charge. It's speaking to the community there, but also people connect online sometimes, you know, in the groups that we can also offer online. So this has been a project that I've been involved in for a while. So if you are in London and you want to come to the premises, just 
look for the service society UK association if you want to have a meditation session for example during your travels and a book that came out a few months ago which is actually the author is called Andreas Dritzas which is a Greek author is by the president of this association which has you know the original branch was in Greece and it's called the title of the book is simple isn't it and it talks about the idea that living a full life in all this business and complication that we live in is more simple than we think if if we acquire certain principles and we practice them and it gives examples from as i say personal examples and from working with people so i quite like this book because it's very simple and it just speaks to you directly to the heart it's something that you read and you say yeah actually I can make some choices and decisions here to live a simpler life, which I think it fits very well in the urban spaces we live. Life is complicated, or it can get complicated, but it's an internal state. I guess the simplicity is an internal state which really speaks to me, especially, you know, I'm trying to handle children and work and I'm trying to simplify things. So that's that's me. Simple, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. I feel like those exercises, speaking of case studies, where y- you only get to choose a certain amount of things to take with you to the desert island or whatever it is, I feel like our collection of recommendations today could satisfy us. If only we had some water, then we would um, we could really live a long time with these recommendations. I, I mean, pizza, how could you go wrong? And something entertaining, something thought-provoking, and a way to use our skills and be with others in community and serve. That sounds wonderful. Thank you both for these recommendations and for this this research that you've done in terms of sharing the learning that you've taken from this course. And it's just been what a delight to get to know you a little bit today and be connected. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity you gave us. I really enjoyed this today, our conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks ever so much. Uh, we'll look forward to hearing it when it's uh, on live. So, yeah, it's been great to be part of this. Thank you. Thanks once again to Paul Galbali and Fania Cristo Delindi for joining me on today's episode. And thanks to each of you for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. It's time, if you've not done it yet, to go over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe so that you can get the weekly emails that'll send over the weekly show notes from the most recent episode, as well as some other resources that don't show up in those regular show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.